tonight's Crack Magic Radio Hour, our fateful host and ramshackle ghost, Keats Ross, sits mad, enveloped in the shimmering sounds of the transistor ghost box as it sparks, beeps, snaps, jumping transitions from beyond. But what does this all mean? What does a ghost box say through numbers? That's where our host sits, maddened at the gematria and the other. Spirit box in the It's about. Don't worry, peace. Don't worry. Perhaps the mouth, which equates to 73 in the ALW cipher of Saturn, which is also 73, is a gape in an initiatory headless, also 73, right, such as depicted in Goya's Saturn devouring his son. And to let go of worry is the key, which is 49, or crown, which is also 49. For I, Keats Ross, which is 93, the virgin, which is also 93, of scrying, also 93, through this ritual. But it did say Keats, not Keats Ross, which equates to 64, Hamakum, the place or God. God doesn't have a place, rather he is the place of the universe. Keats and Hamakum, both 64. Perhaps it's telling me that I am Aspect, which reminds me of the Aspect ritual, which equates to 131, which also equates to We the Hallowed. Aspector or Hauntomancy. Is it telling me that I'm an Aspect of God? This working was the third Hauntomancy working to close the Aspector, 131, into the Prospector, 175, which also equals my name is hidden, my name Nuit, my unveiling, universal heart. The ghost box yells, Nice, man. The other seems to enjoy the raucous, perhaps stating they are a pleasant man or head, 36, among the aforementioned headless, 73. Saturn's sun, 36, not sun as in air, but sun as in star. 36, sun, multiple souls, souls, also equates to 36. Saturn's sun with a U. Saturn's sun, the star, 114. Ha, huh, that also equates to headless John. Johnny Keats, John Casulo. Me again? Perhaps this audiomancer prospector working is confirmation of my own headless right, which equates to 157. To, uh, I don't know, consort my HGA, Holy Guardian Angel. Man is 36. So is Iwas. Crowley's Holy Guardian Angel, Iwas. And Crowley is the progenitor of this 
very gematria I'm using to decipher these transmissions. Is whatever I'm speaking to telling me that I'm consorting my holy guardian angel? And in a sense, wasn't that the purpose of the prospector ritual? To commune with a prospect of self, a supra-self? Holy shit. That is just the very beginning of my 12 to 13 page prospector ritual transcription. Really, a deciphering of the spirit box transmissions in both poetic and literal ways between the spirit box, the ALW cipher, and the musical with a K working of that prospector ritual. This is certainly been the most magnanimous hauntomancy working yet but I'm getting ahead of myself aren't I? I've been babbling on quite a bit about the ALW cipher where am I getting all these numbers? where does it come from? and what is this website? naeq.io but most importantly exactly who or what am I commuting with? well Slither hither, witches and weirdos. For in this session of the Pragmagic Radio Hour, we're going to dive into all of those topics and more. But first, what is the ALW cipher? And where the fuck did it come from? The ALW cipher origin lore, as I had understood it, was simply a mysteriously sketched grid from Crowley in his script of Liberal, the Book of the Law. An otherwise unassuming doodle to the layman, without much fanfare, explanation, or additional notes itself from Crowley. But leave it to the tether conductors and madcap coincidence squashers that are academic and practicing occultniks to unearth a secret alphabet from such a seemingly innocuous sketch. And boy howdy, did they find something truly fascinating. Ultimately, I guess all of it 
goes back to the book of the law, like as a channel text. Um, what What is an interesting thing that I have not yet embarked on doing is seeing how it works with other later channel texts. Ren Collier, a storied ufology researcher, occult practitioner, and general rad-brained rambler, authored the online New Aeon English Kabbalah ALW cipher Gamatria calculator, known as NAEQ.io, along with technostatician and glitch witch Alan Keith. A cursory search for this elusive cipher will bring up often the storied rubric and currents of the English Kabbalah. But what's the difference between the ALW cipher and, say, well, the English Kabbalah? I do usually refer to it just as the ALW cipher because, I mean, I think other people have made convincing arguments that it's not the only cipher. There are other systems of English Kabbalah. I mean, you could make uh, numerical systems for any alphabet that you wanted. Right. Um, I think the English Kabbalah thing has some lineage, if I'm not mistaken, with like um, Christian Kabbalah, like that kind of came about during the Renaissance. And the whole idea there was that if we can, uh, if we can adapt Kabbalah to Christianity, then we can convince the Jews that Christ was the Messiah and convert them all to Christianity. Or right. Yeah. <laughs> this very underhanded thing. Um, and that, of course, became like the Hermetic Kabbalah that, mm -hmm. like, you know, magicians like us use that doesn't really bear much resemblance at all to Jewish Kabbalah. Um, that still confuses like a lot of people. Um, <laughs> is why I use the Q when I spell it, just to make it a little different. The English Kabbalah, with a Q to delineate itself from the Jewish Kabbalah, with a K, has a storied history of psychical archaeology and whip-smart deconstruction from academics and mages alike. I mean, I didn't create the cipher. I mean, like, we're all right. standing on the shoulders of giants here. Like, uh, the real credit for the ALW cipher goes back to a working group in the 1970s with Jake Stratton Kent. Mm -hmm. um, RIP, you know? Yeah, RIP. The late, great Jake Stratton Kent, who defined the Gamatria as a Kabbalah and not just a system of numerology. A Kabbalah is specifically related to three factors. One, a language. Two, a holy text or texts. And three, mathematical laws at work in these two. Using it like as a as a sort of a trance medium, basically. Yeah. You know, you're like, it, it's it's kind of like bibliomancy on steroids. Is like <laughs> right. how I think about it. Like it's, um, because like in my day to day life, like I'm an information security person. I work with um, encryption algorithms and all sorts of stuff. And one thing I've found out over the years of studying this stuff is that like the history of encryption and mathematical manipulation of text um, is like incredibly old. I mean, like you have Trithemius who taught Paracelsus and Agrippa um, writing one of the first sort of what we would understand later as like the secure socket layer that like the entire internet runs on now mm -hmm. um, in his book Steganographia. But, you know, what he's talking about is the idea of steganography of like hiding, using an algorithm to hide ciphered text within 
text that looks completely normal and mundane. It's a super, super cool book. There's actually a, um, a website, uh, I think it's just trichemius.org or something. Um, people can look this up. On yeah. But um, this guy program, it's it's like the text of Steganographia, but it includes these little like key elements in the text that if you click, it'll like show you what's ciphered inside of it and explain like what the cipher is and how it works and stuff. Since diving into the ALW cipher and using it for my own rituals, I've often wondered what charged Ren to create an AEQ.io. It's become such a tool for me. I originally had the idea to work on it when I was watching Hellier, and uh, I was already familiar with the secret cipher of the Euphonauts, because funnily enough, um, that and listening to Alan talk about the cipher on like episodes of like... Uh, the Paracast, like way back in the day. I think like, this is like 2012 or something, uh, 2013. According to NAEQ.io, The Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, a book published in 1994 and written by occultist and ufologist Alan H. Greenfield, seeks to help elucidate the nature of the mysterious Iwas that dictated Lieber Al to Crowley and the myriad entities encountered by UFO contactees in the 20th and 21st century. His theory was that ultra-terrestrials, a term used by researcher and author John Keel, used to describe the beings, transmitted information to humans in a secret, enciphered format, in the guise of enlightened messages. And, uh... You know, this this guy was on the show talking about, hey, you can use this thing to predict when a UFO is going to land or whatever. So I was like, oh, that's awesome. And then I read the book and find out that it's all tied into magic and stuff. And at the same time, um, I was sort of integrating, I was getting back into ufology and I was integrating that with like my ideas about magic and I was getting back into magic and ceremonial magic and stuff. Alan's whole thing kind of what is what kickstarted my participation in this scene. And um, so I was already familiar with it. And it was really funny. I was on, um, I'd seen previews and stuff for Hellier on, on Twitter for like weeks, whatever. And everybody seemed yeah. to be talking about it. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm, I'm a really bad like contrarian. Like if, if everybody's talking about something, I tend to just ignore it. <laughs> I share that. Yeah, for sure. I was like, oh yeah, this looks like garbage. This must be awful. Um, and it was it was Greg and Dana, and it was like Greg and Dana were like to me at the time they were just like those are just the ghost. Hun- that's like the ghost hunting couple. That's like the corny paranormal museum couple. Like, whoa. and then um, uh, Grim from uh, Cruising with Steak asked me to come on uh, his show. Um, I would just come on from time to time and just like shoot the shit with him and talk. Yeah, another good friend of mine, actually. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. And um, the topic, ostensibly, was about Hellier, but I hadn't watched it at that point. And I just wanted to hop on and chat with Grimm and, uh, because Tim Benal was going to be there, too. And I, I freaking love Tim Benal. He's like one of the funniest, coolest people I've ever known. So I was like, any chance I get to like hang out with Tim Benal, I'm going to take it. So we're all talking and stuff, and I think, like, James uh, was talking about how it had something to do with Aleister Crowley and everything, and I was like, wait, hold on, what? (laughs) What does Hellier have to do with Crowley? And then he, like, was telling me um, 
that it had to do with the secret stuff of the euphonauts. And I was like, whoa, whoa hold on. <laughs> what? Greg and Dana Newkirk made a show about the secret cipher of the euphonauts. This right. thing, like, I thought I was the only person in the world who cared about or had, had read. Uh, that same night, and this is featured in Hellier season two, we were just talking about like gas stations that we used to hang out at, at as we were, when we were kids or whatever. And James said something about the wagon wheel and that like, like uh, I think Greg was like listening to the show to the stream, and then he like called in and wanted to talk to us. I guess because that that word had come up for them as well. And uh, during that conversation, I had to quickly like bullshit, like I'd actually seen the show. Hang <laughs> <laughs> on. Um, and at one point, I asked him. I was like, "Well, did you guys use the cipher like that as how Alan like describes it and stuff to like decode some of these words you're getting?" And um, he was like, oh, yeah, we know we totally did. And I thought in the back of my head when he said that, like, I think he's full of shit. I think he's lying to me. I don't think he did. <laughs> At least not, like, effectively. Because it's, like, not super easy to use unless you have something that, like, calculates things. Like, all of the examples in Alan's book are kind of, like, primitive compared to what we can do with sort of the modern software. Version. Yeah, yeah. Um, which apparently wasn't true. He he had been doing something, um, but he wasn't doing it like software based or whatever. It was, he was doing it all by hand. Mm -hmm. um, and then I I at the same time, like not even I don't know like a couple months before then I had started going to the local OTO lodge for like ritual workshop night and stuff. And like I was thinking about joining the OTO, and so it was like all this synchronicity around. Crowley and the secret cipher, the euphonauts and the book of the law and all this stuff all at once. So I knew it was something I needed to do. And I wanted to do something that would basically be available for like anyone to quickly and easily use the cipher as Alan describes it. And, you know, I reached out to my friend, uh, Alan, we had been working for years together on like an indie game project and stuff. So like, uh, they're a great programmer. Uh, I'm not so much of a great programmer, <laughs> um, but I had a basic idea of like what I wanted to do and was able to describe it to them and they, they coded up something. And one of the key things about it is that we both wanted to release it open source. Um, yeah. And you can see like on the page, there's a link to the GitHub. You can fork it. You can make your own version of it. You can include whatever text you want. And um, a lot of people have, and I, that's been super cool to watch over the years as uh, like my friend Vanessa has created her own version of it where she incorporates all the other class A documents and stuff and different people have made their own versions of it. And mm -hmm. that's been wonderful to see. My recent work with the cipher within my hauntomancy workings has literally broke open the head concerning who or what I just might be commuting with. At my base standard, I'm excited to experiment with almost a preternatural pareidolia or to strengthen this kind of subconscious tethering of my own personal folklore. Sure, that's brass tacks. But what if we are speaking with ultra-terrestrials, interdimensional demons, aliens, whatever you want to call them? And so, yeah, so like using this, using something like the ALW cipher to pull real insights, I, I think on some level it taps into like the latent precognitive slash pattern matching 
capabilities of human beings. You know, it's, it's like tapping into something that's coming out of you rather than necessarily being communications from spirits. Like as far as the idea of like spirits and mm-hmm. you want to call them ultra-terrestrials or whatever, uh, I do believe that they exist. Mm-hmm. So, because I mean, I'm a magician. I, I do evocatory <laughs> ritual magic. I've had plenty of encounters with spirits. So right. it's not like I don't believe in spirits. It's more just... I'm not sure how much of what Alan thinks the ALW cipher is, is accurate. Sure. He's got his idea of what it is. Mm-hmm. What I tend to think is that that is a reflection of who Alan is, right? Because Alan is a founding father of like ufology in mm-hmm. America. Like, you know, he, he's really the last of his kind. He's a dinosaur. Um, you know, like, Timothy Green Beckley died, I think, last year. Uh, Gray Barker's been dead for a while. Keel's dead. Mm-hmm. Like all of these guys, I think. I think it's really just Alan and I guess Gene Steinberg's still around. <laughs> That's really it. And he is so tied into that early ufology, like the contactee, Albert Bender kind of world, um, Howard Menger, that that George Adamski world that when he finds something like the ALW cipher, he immediately uses it to justify like his own views about things. Yeah. You know, and that there's nothing wrong with that. Cause I think people misunderstand a little bit that like we create our own reality and to an extent we create the realities of others through our creation of our own realities. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you consider the, what Alan's been doing for decades is uh, a long work of, you know, uh, I don't know, psychological world building magic, then he's been very successful with that. He's sort of bending reality to to fit his view. And I I think what I've come to realize over the years, because like, are you familiar with the story about Jim Mosley, like uh, calling in the UFO over the dam story? Alan told me the story about how Mosley used to um, like get wasted and like call, like make fake UFO call, like <laughs> calls and reports to like emerge, you know, 911 departments and stuff. Or I don't think they had 911 then. <laughs> so, so this one time he called and was like, you know, told him, oh yeah, there's a huge flying saucer over the, the dam outside of town. <laughs> and sure enough, in the newspaper the next day, there was a story about it. And there were multiple eyewitnesses who were at the dam who saw the flying saucer. And (laughs) Alan was very careful in telling me that story and he didn't explain why, but I think I got it. And it's this idea that there's really no such thing as a hoax, Mm. you know, that like, and if you've been doing magic long enough, you kind of understand this too. It's, it's less like fake it until you make it or, and more like fake it to make it. Fake it to make it. I like that. So, quick punchy and i know folks like mitch horowitz you know very much bandy the fake it till you make it kind of aesthetic and ethos and it's something that yeah i consider maybe part and parcel to my own practices within the occult but especially in creativity i know that everything that i learn everything that i use is through necessity if i need a certain instrument on a track that i envision I learned how to play that instrument. Um, Maybe not well, but it helps the vision become manifest. 
One thing that has really pierced the zeitgeist is kind of this uh, confluence between ufology and the occult. Um, I often say that the only great ufology conversations are being had by occultists uh, because I think ufology just at large is kind of a sham and a shit show and an absolutist party for something that's nothing you know not absolute um, but the tethers with the grays and the ALW cipher I feel you know were kind of always there between Crowley and you know lamb the lamb thing is funny um, because that's a personal pet peeve of mine uh-huh. um, about it being like reminiscent of the gray. Um, because I'm pretty sure, and I don't it know this be for poor. certain. <laughs> I, I don't know this for certain. I haven't talked to you know Alistair Crowley about this, but I'm pretty sure that it's like a cheeky sort of illustration of a baby being birthed from an asshole. Like, oh, yeah. If you like turn it upside down, it's like a it's like an ass giving birth to a baby. A literal butthead. No. Yeah. And it's no. it's like something that, it, you know, that and that relates to like the uh, whatever, the 10th or 11th degree of the OTO or whatever, um, you know, magical butt sex mm-hmm. stuff. The thing I think people miss with the gray stuff, because it's not like that I don't think people see what we, you know, think of as like gray aliens or whatever. I just think people ignore the... Um, the historical like it's not like they just pop up out of nowhere like we have legends going back to like ancient greece about the striga or the strix like these um birds that live in the woods at night that come and like attack travelers and suck their blood and stuff very vampire type stuff but they're always related to like owls you know mm-hmm. and the image of an owl like you have uh the lilin in jewish right. were like yeah owl demons who mm-hmm. live in the night and i don't think that 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 owl screen memory mike Wellen type thing is like there for no reason like, yeah whatever the grays are i i personally don't think that they're aliens i personally just think that they're like for lack of a better word demons you know they're sure, yeah, yeah. Night spirits that attack people in their sleep i've heard from researchers i've also heard from individuals that like, um, I remember I was talking to the owner of uh, this like Sasquatch museum in Georgia. Um, and he was telling me that like the majority of people who come in with a Bigfoot story, like something supernatural happens in the story. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bigfoot has like glowing eyes or, or like levitates or vanishes into thin air or something. And he knows for a fact that those cases get like thrown out uh, by the more, quote-unquote scientific researchers who who like you know it's the same it's the same deal with ufology stuff like leslie keen um Mm -hmm. was talking about how she left out all the weird stuff in that new york times article because uh, she wanted it to be taken seriously and i'm like well i'm sorry like you can't have your cake and eat it too there like yeah the very essence of the phenomena is like it's absurdity Mm -hmm. and you you can't have it without that absurdity you just like it doesn't work like you know it, it doesn't fit the majority of lived experiences exactly actually encounter the stuff yeah the like one you know apparent equation that they all want to reach is just mm-hmm. not equitable it's not everyone's going to have the same experience you mm-hmm. know with the same 
type of concept. But I think that brings me, you know, I don't want to take too much of your time, but uh, it is very topical concerning all this. What did you think of the hearings yesterday? <laughs> a whole lot of hula balloon. I did to a friend as big. Uh, my uncle works at Nintendo Energy. Um, it was like a lot of stories, zero evidence to back. Right. Up. It's a lot of like secondhand type stuff. Some of them are really cool. Like there was apparently a thing about like a football field size red cube. And I'm like, that's sick. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. That's like really weird. But, you know, it's just like anything else. Like I I find it really hard to trust anything around these hearings, especially knowing what I know now, uh, thanks to the work of really good investigators like Boltzmann Booty on Twitter mm-hmm. about the history of like psychological warfare using UFOs as like a medium. Yeah. Um, and this is stuff that like, you know, pioneers like Greg Bishop, and I think Mark Pilkington and stuff we're talking, I've been talking about for decades, but it is finally come like kind of like full circle now where um, you have people like Jack Brewer, for example, who are, are talking about like how spooked up NICAP was, you know, and how every single, and I've even talked about this with the Betty and Barney Hill case about mm-hmm. how every single person involved in it, aside from, you know, the two witnesses or the two you know encounters they're all like either involved with like psych warfare uh you know uh like naval intelligence or whatever and it's it's just like so i personally as much as i hate it like i don't listen to like anything modern ufologists have to say okay I'm, i'm interested in hearing stuff from actual eyewitnesses Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I like approaching people's stories from that, like, Jeff Kripal phenomenological kind of standpoint. Like, just mm-hmm. tell me the story. I don't care how weird it is. Like, I love that. Yeah, I'll listen to people's stories. And I'm not going to, like, try to debunk it or whatever. Um, but all these, like, modern ufologists who sort of seem like, for the most part, they just, there's, like, mouthpieces for the defense department. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it, it's less about wanting disclosure of the truth and more about landing, like, new contracts for Raytheon and Lockheed Martin so right. they can protect us from this unknown threat. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. And they're all doties. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, so I, I tend to ignore a lot of modern ufology stuff and, and just mm-hmm. sort of exasperated with it. Um, and honestly, it's, I, I went back and for, from a personal standpoint, anything like, pre-1940 like i don't really pay attention to anything you you philologically like related like pre-world war or post-world war ii mm-hmm. um pre-world war ii everything is like fair game for me i'm very interested in like you know uh, different stories about what was going on post-world war ii it becomes very difficult i think to separate what is truly anomalous and what is like psyop but when it comes to the other and especially in regards to the spirit box and the ALW cipher confluence, I often battle the analytical side of my brain that falls on the sword of pareidolia. But I've come to realize how preternatural pareidolia actually is. It's quite incredible that us humans find patterns in everything. It's almost like an innate superpower. For some folks, that's not good enough. 
it's just all psychological and you're not really dealing with forces outside of yourself. But I contest that and say, perhaps it is. Perhaps it's our way of discovering the forces outside of ourselves by finding these patterns within us. But who are we talking about, really? Who is the other? Something I always come back to is John Keel's ultra-terrestrial theory. It is not unlike how I use the term audiomancy. It's a pretty generalized term that can elicit many different versions under it. So ultra-terrestrial and the super-spectrum makes sense to me. But what if there's something temporal at play here with the self? And with the prospect ritual, one of the intentions was to kind of contact a prospect of self, a future self. But is that an ultra-terrestrial as well? Am I losing steam trying to define it? Is the holy guardian angel a future self, a super self? Is it an outside other? Am I getting lost here? It ends up being kind of reductive. Um, right. But I, I think what is what you can pull away from it is that like I'm I'm currently doing a re like a reread for me, but for some people it's their first time. But it's a book group for Agrippa's three books called Philosophy. Right. And there's stuff that he says about the bodies of demons, and that's D A E M O N S. Demons, yeah. yeah. And about how you know they're what they're composed of, and how they're not material, but that they can interact with the material world and all this stuff. And when I'm reading it, I'm like, well, this is like a lot of what like what Keel was saying right. about the ultra terrestrials and the super spectrum. Um, it's just always couched in a different. Like whatever that person like it, their cultural framework, like right, their Agrippa, filter. Yeah, yeah Agrippa, Agrippa, it's like Renaissance Christianity. For right. Keel, it's like um, you know 1970s technology, um, and it's the same deal with like Robert Monroe and and the Journeys Out of the Body series um, because he has these um, he has these encounters and these journeys and these visions of things that um, people from a different cultural context would find recognizable, but he refers to everything using these sort of like radio and television terms because that's what he was. He was like a radio uh, guy, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's, uh, like a television executive and stuff. So he under he thinks of the world and, and like bands, like radio waves and stuff. Sure. So that's how he it. Um, one thing about the time thing you mentioned um, I don't know. Have you have you uh, went and read since we talked like the Journeys Out of the Body series of books by Monroe? Robert Monroe has come up a lot uh, in my life. And it's one of those things, as you said about Hellier, which I share, you hear too much of something. It feels like it's going to uh, influence too much or it's going to stifle my own findings. I plan on reading it after haunt manual but uh when people tell me to read something over and over again i know to uh not do that until after my artistic projects are finished <laughs> concerning similar things you know definitely um don't let anyone tell you what you have to read but right uh, right yeah. you know they're one of my favorite series of books and the mm-hmm. thing you talked about about you know maybe interacting with future past versions of yourself um throughout the series and the 
Monroe has these encounters with what he believes are sort of like guardian angel type spirits, you know, that guide him and help him out and show yeah. him doing stuff. And what he comes to the conclusion of in the third book in the series, which sort of is the, the capstone to it all, is that um, it was always just him. Oh, shit. Like he has the experience of going back to himself the first time he has an out-of-body experience and helping himself, like, get out. Oh, and- shit. Yep, that was a realization that, of course, I'm dipping into tethers that have been laid before. Robert Monroe, you were on the list because Haunt Manual uh, definitely crescendos into a similar idea. And with the Prospector Ritual, the ALW Cipher and Spirit Box, uh, my findings have kind of veered me towards a super self or an ultra terrestrial or entity that knows me so well and knows my humor. It's trickster-like playing with me. I like the idea, too, that um, like objects and people travel through time. Um, you know, I, I have also kind of like migrated away from using saying quantum anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but the word entanglement, I think, is apt to describe it. Like, for example, my black-handled knife, it is a bayonet from the Spanish Civil War that I bought on eBay back when I was reading uh, uh, Julia Odie's Magister Fisiorum and was in my uh, Goetia phase. And so it was like, I, I need a knife that is uh, taking human life, <laughs> you know, which is what he recommends. And um, so I was like, okay, well, if I just troll eBay for like old bayonets, maybe I can find one that looks like sufficiently cursed or something. <laughs> so I found one and, you know, it wasn't too expensive. It was in really piss poor shape, like completely rusted. Uh, handle was like rotted away. Um, but I bought it and restored it and did like a whole consecration for it and stuff. And it, it's served me very well. Um, what I had the realization of uh, like after a year or two of owning this thing is that like the very first um, like past life memory that I, I feel like I've ever ever had um, was I don't know 13, 14 years ago and it was a memory of me dying in a uh, like a field hospital and I knew that I was like in Spain in the Spanish Civil War. Wow. Um, I'd been like shot or stabbed or something. Was like in the hospital dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly enough, like uh, I think this also applies to people because the nurse, um, I had the impression that it was this uh, like my best friend at the time who was this girl. Like, like that was her in the past life. And the other guy that we were with, he was in the same hospital. And it, and then I realized, like, none of this stuff was in my head when I bought the bayonet, right? Right. I had yeah. completely forgotten about this experience. It wasn't until I was reflecting. I was like, oh, yeah, I had that past life experience a long time ago. And it could just be coincidence. But I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if that, that bayonet is not only a blade that took human life, but one that literally took my life mm. past life. Yeah. You know, what better, what better black handled knife than the one that took your own life? 
And it has come through across gulfs of time, through mm -hmm. coincidence and synchronicity to be back with me. Um, and I have no way of proving this. I don't know sure. if this is true, but it's fun. And that's the story that I tell myself. <laughs> One thing that the ALW Cypher and the Spirit Box and my Audiomancy workings has really charged are these paranormal flare-ups, um, these spooky transitions within the day, and it has been a sort of divergent magical daily ritual practice to log and, you know, trace these fantastical whims and fancies. And not only that, it's just poured into all of my creative ventures. I mean, the confluence of magical means with the creation of art has always been the purpose of this podcast entirely, um, and especially my routes within it. And say what you will, if it's me consorting the other or not, um, I think is inconsequential because the benefit of such a magnanimous, fantastical exercise through the mundane um, has really inspired and enhanced creativity. And it's also really gotten me to look at past traumas and kind of haunted memories, you know, through my work with Han Manuel. And so like any kind of device, it has been one that has helped eschew kind of the uh, lonely aspects of the human endeavor which is life you know and uh, it is really supercharged fantastical things and I think in the end that's that's what matters is creating your own folklore and existing in the super spectrum and dancing like a madman within the sights and sounds of a fevered pitch. If you want a weird existence, if you want a weird world, then you need to be out creating the weird stories and the folklores and the personal mythologies. Because if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it for you. And yeah. you want to live in somebody else's mythology. Mm -hmm. And that it's perfectly okay to create your own mythologies, even in the idea of whether or not they're true or not is immaterial. It doesn't really matter. Um, I was reading like Cosmic Trigger at the time, so I was very yep. into yeah. <laughs> Robert Anton Wilson kind yep. of mode. But, you know, it was this whole like programmed or be programmed thing, you know, mm -hmm. like it, the best way to inoculate yourself against um psychological warfare basically is to create your own realities and be able to like switch between them and the quote unquote real world easily. And, um, and also too, just like trying to encourage people. Cause this is one thing I think that, that drove me a little nuts about the hellier phenomena was that like so many people, it seemed like, I don't know, like they were relying on Greg and Dana to provide this weirdness to them. Mm -hmm. And my big thing was like encouraging people, like create your own weird stories. I was like, anyone can do this. 
like you can go legend tripping you can go look for books about like local ghost stories and stuff. oh yeah you can go out and do any of this yourself and you should don't rely on other people to enchant your life for you you know you you need to enchant your own life one thing i think we are saddled with in this information age is a kind of permanently online risk reward system and this can be transdimensional even say the hauntology of the existence on the internet or the being of the internet as memory but not only that of legacy it's through these boxes and these wires and everything that we feel almost kind of ratified and as if we were actually performing or doing the thing when really it was through, you know, code. I just feel like I come up against a lot of the folks that are fine with not taking risks for their personal mythology and their personal folklore when it comes to real-world implications and would rather tread the waters of the Internet and feel its wrath and, you know, keep warm inside. The only element of that um, kind of extremely online sort mm -hmm. of weird world um, are uh, – my favorite example of this is the back rooms. Are you familiar yeah. with the back rooms? Yeah. Yeah, and – I love the backroom stuff because it isn't owned by any one single person. There are tons of people who make content around it. And right. the most fun thing about it is that it's, it is completely fictional that mm -hmm. no one's claiming that it's real, but it has such a resonance with anyone who like encounters it. Um, that like it, it, it sort of is real in its own way. Like I, I remember the first time I saw any backrooms related stuff, I kind of freaked out because I remembered having like dreams like decades ago about like a very similar environment, not exactly the same, but you know, endless rooms and randomly generated hallways and stuff. And I was the like, liminal. Yeah. Yeah. This, this like really hits like something deep inside of like, I agree. Our, uh, I don't know, like imaginal world. Like yeah. you just don't get that like all this stuff is happening all the time around you. You just don't have the eyes to see. Yeah. You know? Once you have the eyes to see, you understand that like we live in a very weird world. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always been something I've said. It's not really about coincidence conduction, right? We're not, we're not just looking for coincidences. Um, we're looking deeper than that. It's pattern making. And, you know, of course, I get stuck back on the pareidolia. And perhaps that's a bit of a cop out to say, you know, magic in, in and of itself by its base standard is good psychologically for somebody. You know, this intention, this uh, prayer of sorts, this uh, goal minded or, you know, passion uh, focused thing. But I come across that a lot with myself of, um, you know, feeling maybe I am lessening it too much uh, through the analytical. And, you know, I, I cop out from it being as heavy as it should be. Um, and it still does. It still becomes as heavy as it should be. It is, it is a bit of a cop out, but I that is the main reason in the what is this page I wrote? Exactly. I love that. About how, yeah. like, don't put any particular importance on the order of things. Mm -hmm. Like, 
you know, just let it go through it and see what resonates with you. Like what yes. looks right, like what stands out to you. You have to, it, there's a, like a degree of intuition and psychic sort of ability that goes into using it. That's why I said Absolutely. it's like bibliomancy, you know, you, yeah. you have to, it, it's, it's not like a hard and fast thing because one of the, one of the big differences when you actually use the application versus reading something like Alan's book is that in Alan's book, you know, he'll give a word and he'll give like one, like one solution to that word from the cipher. He did, but what you, when you actually use the the tool that, that we built, like you see that any given word has like, can have hundreds of different matches, right? Like right. it's not like it it is limited to like a single word, like a lot of times what, what Alan has in his work. Um, and, and that, that brings up the solution that you have to let your intuition drive a little bit when you're using it. Using the ALW cipher in conjunction with the spirit box for this prospect or ritual, which everyone can read at least excerpts of at hauntmanual.com. Uh, through this ritual, you know, there there does seem to be a channeling aspect. And I'm reticent to say it's, uh, you know, something moving through me entirely um, or me just as transcriber, as transcriptionist for, you know, these wonderful transmissions. And the ALW Cypher has unlocked uh, a lot of deep folkloric resonance uh, within their transmissions. But, you know, I often feel strange about the idea of channeling and the idea of channeled texts and whatnot, because I guess I could never wrap my head around it before. I always just felt it was like this hypnotic, almost meditative, trance-like way of automatic writing or automatic speaking or, you know, being an automatic orator. Um, and it was a skill in a way. But I do see it now and I do think there's like true beauty in working in communion in conjunction with these things moving through you whether it's you know through the audiomancy that i was playing with the spirit box to decode later with the alw cipher or whether it's like coming through you but uh you know utilizing these paranormal kind of tools like the spirit box or it's something occultnik like the ALW Cypher, I really feel is like unlocked this interesting vector for me where I am but an agent and receiver. You know, I, I'm a court stenographer for deep, uh, really gratifying and sometimes abysmal kind of energies. My, my favorite personal favorite like channel text of all time is the changing light at Sandover by James Merrill, mm -hmm. um, who is a super famous poet in America, very won a ton of awards. People in like literary, they really, uh, excuse me, literary establishment, like know who James Merrill is, but I haven't mm -hmm. met any magicians or cultists who do. Okay. And it's a shame because like the changing light at Sandover is this like 600 page apocalyptic poem that was composed over the course of like decades using a Ouija board with his like partner. And it is like an incredible channel text. Um, 
there's like multiple different spirits that talk to him. There's all this stuff revealed about the early history of the solar system, about what flying saucers are. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's an incredible um, book and you know, it'd be fun to see if there's any sort of cipher within it as well. Yeah. Cause it really depends on how much I'm, I'm of two minds with this. Like I feel like a couple of years ago when I first worked on this stuff, I was more in the Allen camp of, this is how the ultra terrestrials are like trying to communicate with us or whatever. Um, I don't know if I'm so into that camp now, or if I just consider use of cipher texts, like use of effectively, like, um, I don't like the mathematical manipulation of text has like meditative quality to it. The following is an excerpt from James Merrill's The Changing Light, Sandover. Like Adonai, all life imbued with the dead's refining consciousness. Much more mundane, my boy. We, I should guess, will become power stations in such crude terms as oil, cold wood, wheat, corn, ruby sources, quite literal of energy. Not enough to simply energize. You'll have to speed things up. Come on, you guys. We want two crops this season. Man must eat. He's ever more depleted. You poor chums will have their work cut out for ugly prospect, but it's what the weather seems to be telling us. These crippling snows in Athens, in Miami. Quite the contrary, I fear. Less grain, more starvation. Balance once again. Why don't they name him? Who do you suppose? No. 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 thank the incredible Ren Collier for talking to me about all things ultra-terrestrial, ALW cipher, magic, folklore, creating your own mythology, and getting off the damn computer. I really appreciated his time. He does great work, and you should definitely check out his Twitter. All of his links are in the show notes. And speaking of show notes... I think you might have noticed something if you investigated. I'm experimenting with this one. Instead of the audio cast in Pragmagic being the almost literal spoken word version of the Haunt Manual chapter, or the Haunt Manual chapter being basically just show notes for this here audio cast, I'm trying something. I'm trying a confluence, a third mind, if you will. The Haunt Manual chapter is literary show notes for this episode, and the audio cast 
is a specific footnote of this literary chapter. A longer one, a more produced one. I think the audio cast is far more girthy and needing, and it's the full Ren Collier interview. However, the Haunt Manual chapter really dives in and shows you the transcript of the Prospector Ritual uh, excerpts of its ALW Cypher breakdown and my poetic and almost beat-like uh, breakdown of that ritual. So, again, this is probably my slick way of getting you to both look at and subscribe to hauntmanual.com while also listening to Pragmagic uh, at pragmagic.com or wherever pods are cast. Very, very soon, we will be releasing a kind of joint EP between me, my project, Revel Raz, which is like Dakota Slim's Dark Twin, and it has tracks from the first studio album uh, I've done since Dakota Slim's Bardo's, which you'll hear a track of at the very end, and my partner, Mary June of Moon Division, her project and her forthcoming EP, and we're going on tour. It's kind of a sly tour. We're doing an Eclipse and Taos, playing a show in Long Beach, um, but we'll be stopping places along the way. If you find it in your heart to help our gas tank at all, again, PayPal link is in the description. Otherwise, stay tuned for this music. I'm really excited about it. Revel Raz was unearthed because of the Hauntomancy and Haunt Manual workings. And I'm back with a vengeance and some fuzz and some desert gospel shenanigans.